Welcome back to the Syracuse Football Podcast. I'm Stephen Bailey, joined as always by Julian Wiggum, and we have another orange loss to sift through. Uh, this one a little different. Syracuse basically needed to beat Boston College to have a chance at making a bowl after its second bye week. Instead, the Orange gave up nearly 500 rushing yards through three quarters, the most ever for any Syracuse team in any game. A.J. Dillon, David Bailey ran all over the Carrier Dome, and at the end of the game, the score was 58-27. to A pretty heartbreaking loss. Just a really defeated team afterward, you know, you can take a little bit away from the offense playing somewhat better. The offensive line looked good against was a pretty bad BC defense. And uh, actually, just before we started recording, Syracuse got a commitment from three-star defensive end Latari Kinsler, who's four stars on rivals, uh, has a really big offer sheet. He's probably the best recruit in their class through 2020. So busy day. I think a lot of what Julian and I talk about is going to be related to the defense. Uh, we're also going to touch a little bit on the coaching staff and, and whether there should be changes after the season. And then we've got a bunch of fan questions to sift through. So before we dive into that, I need to remind you all to go subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you listen to your podcasts on. If you want to purchase advertising, on the show, please contact Dylan Carpenter at 315-470-6069. All right, Julian, let's dive in. At first, I just kind of want to get your overall defensive takeaways. I think we kind of knew what was coming. Boston College was going to try and run the ball, and like you said, use some play-action passing, even with a walk-on quarterback and Dennis Grissel, to attack the Orange's back line, and both of those were extremely effective. What did you kind of see from the Orange defense, and just what went wrong? So there was a game plan in place, and you they knew that Boston College was going to line up in heavy 12, even 13 personnel uh, and have a got one receiver out and just run the ball downhill, dive plays, power run, whatever the case, right? And the Orange were lining up the box, eight, nine men front, even corners were sitting up there. The problem was, especially when play-action pass started to hit, the corners on the outside were just not keyed in in terms of their eyes, which and I've been there before too. If you're looking for 3,000 different things, then the Boston College, uh, whoever was commentating on the game, did a great job saying the Boston College offense was doing things to stress all of your defensive principles. And they did a great job of that when they were uh, – lining up receivers on the outside and having them crash down, that looks like a run. Like to a, to a corner, to a linebacker, that's something that a, a receiver does when it's a run play at 99% of the time. And then, of course, he squirts out and goes for a long game, and guys are like, oh, man, it, it tricks your eyes. So I think the secondary was biting a lot of eye candy. But another problem is, one, I thought guys quit by the middle of the second quarter uh, in terms of tackling. like and, and this is something we can get we can get to later. But it, there gets to a point where you can tell where guys no longer want to make plays. They don't take angles to the ball. They do things where they'll rush up and make it look like they want to make a play and they know the ball's not coming. But then when it comes time to actually – lay some wood on somebody, they're nowhere to be found. And I'm seeing that it's not just one guy. There's, there's several that guy. I've noticed it across the front. There's guys who don't want to play, and I get it. Uh, but it's just 
I've been on teams where that was punishable by another player. Like, for example, when I when we played Georgia Tech in 2013, um, I got clipped by a, a receiver, uh, a running back going downfield. My knee is, at this point, burning hot from pain, and I'm trying to limp to go make a tackle. I still miss. Guy scores. Dijon Davis came up to me after the play to snap on me to say, hey, you didn't do as much as you could to get there. And then he came and snapped on me later on. And Cam came up like, Julian, did you really, are you sure you gave 100%? I'm like, did you guys see me on film get clipped? Like, that's as hard as I could run. But on the teams I played on, some of the things that I'm seeing on tape right now from this Syracuse team were just complete, like that was a football sin. Uh, in terms of guys will see you on tape not running to the ball or not giving 100% effort, and they would fight you right there on the sideline, and they would call you all out of your name when you got back into the locker room. Yet I'm seeing it regularly on these Syracuse teams, and I hope a coach calls me or something to say, hey, that's not our team, because you don't want that on tape. You don't want it, and it's, it's worrisome because at this point in the season, when you're playing at Boston College or whoever else, that's not what Syracuse football should be. And I, I really hope internally both coaches get on people and guys inside locker room who think they might be a leader and say something. Because I, I've never seen that, and it never even on the teams that weren't that great at Syracuse, we still had rules and laws and such where you can't go on the field and put out 40% effort or whatever the case may be. And I, I saw a lot of that in terms of defense, and it's really disappointing to see because this isn't even as a commentator or anyone. This is just as alumni having played for the team and knowing, like, what Syracuse defenses have stood for in the past. Like, you can't go out there and put that kind of effort out there and then and, and, and represent Syracuse. Like, that, that's not, you know, what, what we've been accustomed to. It, we're not saying we were everything amazing, but God, I'm, I'm seeing a lack of effort, and it's, it's disappointing to see. Uh, especially being someone who's played on several Syracuse defenses. Yeah, you know, I was talking with John Phillips, who is one of the guards for Boston College, and actually a Christian Brothers Academy graduate, someone who Syracuse overlooked, despite John's older brother Andrew playing for the Orange. And he said that he just felt like as the game went on, the blocks were holding up longer, Syracuse's defense, well, maybe the defenders weren't always not looking to hit someone, but they just weren't. They weren't able to get off blocks to get there. And then when you did see the rare players who were uncovered, there really aren't going to be a lot of them when you have 12 personnel, in theory. We're not making plays. Um, BC had four 50-plus-yard touchdowns in the second quarter. Two of them were the play-action shots, and then two runs. And on one of those, David Bailey went 74 yards. Frankly, I you know we talk about guys maybe not stepping in and, and trying to make a hit. It looked like Evan Foster had a chance to take him on in a hole and just did not really get there. Um, you know, to me, that's one watching back where I was like, you know, how does that exactly happen? And, of course, I'm not a former player, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I, based on what you said and what I saw, to me, that lines up. And we're going to get into a lot more of that as the show goes on. I did want to dedicate a few minutes to talking about the coaching staff. And, I mean, that's obviously something that comes along with any season that, that goes this badly is, okay, well, well, what are you going to do about it? You can't do nothing, right? 
And I spent last week writing a story on Mike Cavanaugh, Syracuse's offensive line coach, who's, who's obviously been under a little bit of heat. The offensive line's been really bad. They're actually better against Boston College for sure. I mean, BC only has eight sacks on the year, had eight coming in. They got three against Syracuse, which is a really good number for BC considering their average, but a really good number for Syracuse considering its average. <laughs> you know, I thought Tommy DeVito had some time. Um, you know, I thought the I thought the line looked better, but against a worse against a worse opponent, obviously the defense it couldn't have gone any more poorly. Like, what do you kind of think, Julian? I mean, I don't. To me, there's no like clear candidate of someone that needs to go. But do you think a cha- Like, do you think this is something that can just improve with the players? Like, how much of it's on the players, and how much of it's a? Do you think a situation where maybe a change is kind of needed to spark some growth? Oh, it's touchy here. So. Just because I, I, obviously I've never been a coach or never been in an administrative position to hire or fire people, but from when I when I played and kind of noticing how coaching changes happen, uh, just from a distance, uh, one I'm always going to say watch the players and see what kind of mistakes are constantly being repeated, right? Because then it's either coached or it's allowed, and once you kind of realize either a if it's coached like this and we're not doing well or it's being allowed and it's a, it's a poor uh, product in the field, that's when you start to pinpoint, all right, which units are constantly looking the same and not improving and there aren't real variables player-wise uh, that can kind of answer why things look the same. So on the offensive line, you've got constant young guys who are out there. You had to grad transfer quit, um, and you don't have much experience across the front. I can't say that that's a, really a coaching thing or anything's truly being allowed as far as bad technique because you've got tons of young guys. You've got uh, – and, and in, in teams past, you know, the offensive line typically held up. All of a sudden, we're just seeing all these breaks across the front. And Coach Kavanaugh has been here before. It's not like it's his first year. So it's really hard to just say, hey, it's the offensive line coach here, right? Or well, it's bad. You can't, it, you can't, it's hard to say, oh, it's the secondary coach here because we're seeing – uh, the shy tackling all of a sudden. It's, it's, but you do want to look for some of the things where poor technique is in play, and this is something that coaches know. And you're looking for some where poor technique is in play, and you're trying to find out what is being allowed that shouldn't be anymore. And that's when I think Coach Babers and head coaches across the country kind of look at their assistants to see, okay, where are we messing up regularly, and what are some things that are either being allowed or coached poorly that we need to you know go ahead and cut and that's kind of when you look towards coaching as an issue um in my own opinion in terms of if, if there's been a coaching problem um it, it's hard for me to say i mean i i really think that this year's team fell apart you know up front first in terms of offensive production and then everything else fell apart on defense despite this week's game that was incredibly poor i don't think i actually don't think they were prepared very well um but in turn i in, Besides this game, I think the defense has held up pretty well. We've been talking about the defense is playing, you know, up to up to standard for the most part, and just being let down by the offense, which is understandable. So uh, it, it's hard to pick out one coach or a few coaches and say it's you. But when coaches are looking to evaluate other assistants, it's typically looked at as how are things being coached, what are guys doing on film, and what's being allowed that we can't have anymore. And then that's when. Uh, head coaches tend to look at their assistants, and that's how they make judgment calls on who who stays and who goes. Yeah, that was well said, Julian. And and to me, I 
the more I think about this and the more I talk to people, I do think a lot of it is a, a player problem. Um, Kendall Coleman said something a few weeks ago about not having the same level of work ethic as they did last year. I think that was after mm-hmm. the pick game. And then K.J. Ruff talked today about guys maybe, one, getting complacent after winning, and two, people taking winning for granted, like younger people in the program. He didn't say transfers, yeah. but transfers, new players, who maybe didn't work as hard in the offseason. He talked about the La Familia docuseries that they produced internally and kind of all the hype around the team. And, and you know, I'd kind of heard rumblings of that from guys and, and people around the program throughout camp, worries if this would, you know, kind of get to their heads. So, you know, I do think a lot of it's on the players. I completely agree with your point on the offensive line. You know, I, I to me, I, I think that's fairly cut and dry. Um, I think there are legitimate gripes about other aspects of coaching. You know, I, I'm not a professional play caller, but I have no idea why they dialed up that quarterback draw twice today. You know, downfield shots are working early, and then you go back to the quick stuff on the sideline. I, I don't think the Syracuse offensive staff has done and, – and again, they're working with a hand tied behind their back here with that offensive line, but I don't think they've done a good job of putting their pieces in the right places to expose mismatches and create, you know, explosive plays. Uh, would it, would another coach be better at that in this situation? Is kind of hard for me to say, um, but you know, I I think there can justifiably be some fault there. But the more I talk to guys, the more I I see, you know, players wishing they'd done things differently in the off season. So I know that won't stop any discussion, but I thought it was important to talk about and contextualize a little bit. Um, before we head over to Twitter questions, this is a this is a crazy stat that I just pulled up because I was going back when you were talking about the defense this year, and I think they've been pretty good. They've had some good games, certainly. Um, the NC State game, I thought they were excellent. Um, and you go back to the first game of the year, Liberty had minus four rushing yards. They allowed 500 more rushing yards to Boston College than they did to Liberty. That's like, I know, that's like unfathomable. Like, how are those two numbers coming from the same team? Which to me, right. like, is that coaching or is that the players? I, I would lean toward the latter. But it really yeah. it really speaks to it. You know what I no, mean? I, I, I agree. I agree with you. And, I, and again, that's, that's why I, you know, start this, this podcast, podcast also passionately because you can see when guys aren't giving the same effort anymore or routinely making the same mistakes. And a lot of that, now I'm glad guys are recognizing it, that they didn't put the, the effort necessary, whatever, in the offseason. And I've seen that as well, too. Guys coming off of a, a good uh, season, like, I saw more with individuals, guys who had good individual seasons and then decide, I don't need to go to this off-season workout or I don't need to do this extra work. I'm good. And there, there, uh, complacency is certainly something that takes place on college campuses, especially with young athletes um, who, who've had a little bit of success. Uh, but I think for as a team, because winning was so new to them and the hype that came uh, so immediately, I, I do think that was something a bit of an adjustment period. So um, I'm hoping they learn from this, but it, it, it's certainly clear that I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's more in towards players than any kind of coaching problems at this point. All right, let's dive into some questions. Kevin Wall, Noon's Magician contributor and all-around good dude, uh, would appreciate Julian's perspective on the long pass plays Boston College hit. Broadcast blamed Foster, but if he's supposed to be in run support, is it on the corners not staying with their man or communication breakdown? Yeah, so this was something I was kind of curious about as well because I saw Foster gunning up there, but then luckily Boston College ran the exact same play 
later on, and Foster gunned up there again. And the deal is, <clears throat> when you have a big play like that hit you, it's something maybe you didn't anticipate, uh, you talk about it right away on the sideline. So there's, it's really, really rare when a player makes the exact same mistake twice in the same spot against the same play, being shown the exact same action, right? A senior so three-year starter, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can't blame – I don't think this had anything to do with Foster. I don't think it was the state. I think that was his actual position. I think he was supposed to be gunning up and run support. But I did notice there was two different corners on each play. So the first one I think was – um, was Terrell Williams, and then the second was uh, Chris Frederick, right? Yep. And in this instance, I do know as a player, sometimes if it's like a, a half the field, you may not be in that discussion of what happens, and then all of a sudden you're in that position and you make the exact same mistake. And it's like, oh, man, okay. So yeah, I think he was. Uh, I think the responsibility was on the corner uh, to guard, have the receiver, but – there was a great explanation on the broadcast um, how Boston College's offense was stressing defenses uh, by giving them, by stressing defensive principles, by giving them everything that says run. So your eyes are keyed in, and you're saying, okay, no run. No, like you see everything on tape that's supposed to be a run, and you're like, okay, got it, run. Then all of a sudden you're getting a pass play and the guy's behind you. So it, it's just about having eyes, and you had to have supreme, supreme discipline as a corner, not to give that up because it was a really, really great design play uh, by by Boston College. But I think that those big play action passes there were actually on the corners because at the top, uh, one corner was in man, I think in both instances. So uh, it tells me that there was probably man on the outside and then a high safety because uh, Cisco ends up playing underneath uh, the dig, which I think he has to take once the man flashes. Another guy was so slow getting up there. So, yeah, that one's on the corners. Great question, but I think that one is going to be on the corners, and it's hard to blame a safety in that case, especially because he's coming up the exact same way twice. Yeah, just a brutal position to be in, frankly. You know, you yeah. can understand why the corners look and run the whole way. you got to walk on quarterback back there, especially before they hit play action the first time. I mean, that's, that's tough. It was a good play. Uh, Jeff Glotzer. From here on out, don't you think there should be an emphasis on getting reps for the younger guys at O-line and linebacker so they can hit the ground running next year? Professional negligence not to, but they have not done that during his tenure. Um, Well, I think the offensive line probably won't see any changes. I mean, Evan Adams is the only guy not back next year, so, I mean, I I think they'll ride it out with him. He certainly hasn't been the biggest problem on the line, and, I mean, maybe you would get Patrick Davis a look in there, but... Uh, I think you want to keep those guys in place and get them as many reps as, as you can. Obviously, they're getting plenty of those. Linebacker's a little different, right, because like you said, uh, in the 2015 and 2016 seasons, Brian Ward didn't go away from Zaire Franklin and Paris Bennett. Frank, frankly, he rode those guys into the ground. Um, and yep. we saw them rotate a little bit more last year and definitely, uh, well, you're going four two five, so you're able to mitigate some of those some of those snaps a little bit this year. Uh, I I would say yes, frankly, I would say yes. You know, I I think getting Michael Jones and Juan Wallace reps is really valuable. Uh, Lee Koba too. Um, Jeff Kanarku is huge. He's like, I think he's like 21 years old. He's Canadian. Like he is he is enormous. Like that guy is going to do good things for Syracuse at some point. 
get him reps, get him experience. Um, frankly, you know, play all of those guys because you're not making a bowl, um, and you're going to need those guys next year. That defense loses a ton of people. Alton and Kendall, so your two defensive ends, one of your defensive tackles, and KJ Ruff. Side note: McKinley Williams is now eligible for a red shirt, so in theory, he should be back if he decides to come back, and Syracuse wants him back to pair with Josh Black on the inside, but you're going to have new faces all around and behind them. Two linebackers gone, Andrew Armstrong, Kylan, uh, uh, Andrew Armstrong and Lakeem Williams, excuse me, gone. Chris Frederick, your boundary corner for the last three years, gone. Evan Foster, your strong safety, gone. Uh, that's a lot of guys. So preparing as many people as possible I think is really important. Um, John Like, when does coach say that their performance is unacceptable? Awful year and play is so bad. Where's the leadership? That's tough. Uh, you know, Dino has put has kept his face pretty strong publicly. Um, I don't think he's really said that a lot of this is acceptable, but I think he's tried to take the heat off some of the younger guys, uh, especially the offensive line. I think he's defended, you know, Taj Harris, who, who's kind of had some public blow-ups on the sideline a little bit. Uh, you know, wh- I guess, what do you think, Dino? Uh, excuse me, what do you think, Julian? Uh, like, how does Dino handle that down the stretch here? And, and like, wh- how did you see Schaefer handling? Is there anything that you kind of maybe learned from things that maybe, maybe you thought he did well or, or didn't do so well? Yeah, so when things are starting to head down, you kind of realize that right, a bowl is in, in, in the question for us. Uh, the process, you're telling guys internally, you know, you're not going to publicly go out and say, you know, this guy's doing terrible, this guy's messing up, and this, you know, you're not going to put your guys out there like that. Um, but you you do go back inside the locker room, and you kind of, you, you have your mom, like with Shafe, uh, it was more so, at least on the defensive side, Shafe would kind of give, uh, during team meetings, his little spiel like he usually would. He kind of kept it collected, uh just as he would when it was the big beginning of the season. But Bullard and some of the assistants would come in and they would really give it to us when it came to what was going wrong and what we were doing wrong and when and how things needed to change. That It was more so Bullard's surprise. Shave was – I know he has a rep for being the, uh, the guy yelling at Dabble Sweeney across the field and all that, but <laughs> internally he actually – he internally, he actually, uh, for the most part, kept together in terms of not, you know, giving us too much backlash. He, he did, I think, do a better job as, as his time as a head coach went on, uh, kind of keeping that even keel uh, manner. But assistants, especially Bulla, would come out and really uh, come in heavy saying, all right, this is where things are going to change. And you would feel it more so on the practice field as well. Um, and I'm sure that was from Coach Shape getting on his assistants, telling them, hey, this needs to be different, this needs to be different, this needs to be different. And you would feel it from the assistants on the field. So uh, and I'm sure that's what's happening right now for Syracuse. And I'm sure those younger guys, when it comes to like playing younger guys and such, I'm sure uh, the, the mess will be we need guys who are motivated. And we've seen who isn't motivated to play anymore. So – just know you may not be playing as much. And I'm sure that's going to be a message for a few guys um, across the board, especially because there's so many guys leaving on defense, that they're going to start playing those younger guys and letting them know, uh, yeah, it's your time. You need to uh, get some reps and kind of show what you can do. And 
to be honest, younger guys are typically the ones who are the most motivated uh, to play at this point as well. Um, I can remember my uh, sophomore year before I got knocked out, that was probably one of my most motivated seasons because I wanted more playing time. And I saw that from a lot of guys as I got older as well. Uh, the younger guys typically tended to be uh, who got more playing time, especially when bowl games became out of the discussion because you want to find motivated players. Um, you want to see what you have. And you want to start developing them in a starting role uh, to head into next year. Yeah, Dino did say after the game today that they were definitely looking for young guys who were ready to step up and, and get some snaps the last few games. Mark Lewitz, in the absence of Williams from this year's is the absence of Williams from this year's D line magnifying the importance of Slayton's to last year's line. Underappreciated piece of the puzzle. Uh, I mean, to me, you couldn't even magnify like. How how important Chris Slayton was last year. I think he was everything, you know. And then yeah. there's some an opportunistic back end and lots of other things went right. But I mean, he opened up Kendall and Alton. Uh, you know, he he was the number one guy on, on opposing coordinators, uh, opposing offensive coordinators sheets for the game plans going in every week. Um, I don't think McKinley would have had nearly that effect. But I think he would have been really helpful, especially stopping the run. I think he would have been a really important guy to have for the BC game. Um, and, and, yeah, frankly, not having him hurt. Curtis Harper has done a nice job of, of developing and getting better. But anytime you put someone out there who hasn't played much, who and who's not a freak athlete, you know, you're going to run into issues. And they have. You know, they're alternating Brandon Barry and Chris Elmore in there. They've mixed some guys around. I think they've done a nice job of trying to get creative. But I would say it is a piece in, you know, the puzzle of, of what's gone wrong this year. Maybe not one of the bigger ones, but especially when things have started to slip up for the defense, it's been when they can't stop the run. It's that Maryland game, the Clemson game, Boston College, even Pittsburgh. So, you know, that's that's run stopping, especially on the inside, has been an issue. And, uh, you know, not having McKinley's hurt. Uh, he, he Like I said, he is eligible to come back next year. Uh, we'll see. He can play in the, the next three games. And in, if they made a bowl, he could play in that too. And, uh, and he would still have another year. If he graduates in May, he's also eligible to grad transfer. So uh, that is he's going to have an interesting decision to make. Um, I think a lot of guys are after a season like this. Um, all right, moving down the line, Doc Vernald. Have defended this team and coaches all year, but watching today, it was obvious these guys have packed it in. What does Dino do for the Q's fans to remain faithful with this type of display? Um, you know, we really kind of touched on this already. I think we kind of agree with you. Um, I don't know about packed it in, but certainly the, the defense backed off on making hits. Dino likes to call them business decisions. You know, their their decision-making changed <laughs> midway through that second quarter. Um <laughs> I don't know what else he can really do this year. I really think it's about preparing them for next year and uh, and owning it. And, you know, I think Dino did that a little bit after the game. You know, he hasn't really made too many excuses. You know, he's pointed out where they're young and where they're, you know, kind of making their own mistakes. But he's also credited good teams for, um, you know, for flat-out beating them, which is obviously what happened today more than anything else. Uh, Patrick McNulty, it seems like Tommy struggles if his first read isn't open, getting to his second and third read, the play, okay, no periods here, the, pl- the play he reached out and fumbled after he broke the pocket, he had an open man downfield. Do you guys see this, or is it a product of the line just being bad early in the season? Well, the line's been bad before today, all season, so isn't 
This isn't just something that happened early on, um, but it's definitely affected the way he goes through his progressions. Uh, to me, especially later in games, the Clemson game, and I also think back to the Pittsburgh game, I thought he was just rushing, you know, as the game went on. I think that's natural. And it's, sometimes it's not like he'll look off his first read. I think sometimes he goes through the reads before you can really tell if the first read is going to be there. There was a, a fly route there, and Hackett, he missed that game. And I think back to the Clemson game, he missed Hackett and then Taj over the middle on one play. Um, I think he's done a better job of breaking the pocket. But, yeah, I mean, all this pressure has clearly messed with his internal clock. Um, it's something that is going to be difficult to fix after the season. I think Nate Mink, my colleague, you know, and I were talking about this before the game today. Like it's something he's going to have to work on. Clearly, he's got the arm talent. You know, we saw that today. Um, and I actually thought he was pretty good today. You know, he threw three touchdowns. He could have had a fourth to Sean Riley. Uh, him and Tristan just missed on a couple deep balls. Um, so you know. And, you know, that fumble is, is not good because I don't think he's going to get the first down anyway. Uh, I'd have to rewatch to, to, to kind of assess whether there was a guy open downfield. But, you know, I, I definitely think the O-line play has affected Tommy, and that's something they're going to work on after the season. Uh, defensive one here, probably a good one for Julian. <laughs> is there a reason that Evan Foster is still starting? Continuously keeps <laughs> taking bad angles, horrible on play action, misses a ton of tackles. We will say play action wasn't him for those two those two plays. Is it more of a phil- philosophy thing to have smaller players? Our linebackers are tiny compared to the rest of the ACC. I mean, I, <laughs> I, um, I, I almost want to put take a pass on this question, but um, you know what? If, if a guy is is struggling and he's doing, and you know what? I'll just use myself here. Um, in my senior year, uh, right, I ended up getting benched for a younger guy, and it, I was making really the same. It wasn't a, a scheme mistake. It was just over the top. My head wasn't there, and I refused to turn my head around. It would either result in a pi or uh, a catch, right? And it was routine, and my coaches were like, and I stayed in uh, throughout my junior year when things started happening and throughout my senior year, and coaches were like, Julian, it's the easiest mistake, just fix it. You're our best corner, fix it, (laughs) right? And they leave me in there because to them, it's an easy thing to fix, but to me, it was a mental block that I couldn't get over. And eventually my coaches decided, Julian, you've we've given you a bunch of time to fix this, and we find we can't we can't keep having it. We're gonna go with someone else, and I'm like, it, it was just a decision. I'm like, you know what? I got it. You know, it makes sense. And I started playing safety, and things got a little better, and you know, the season went on. Uh, but coaches will stick with the guy if he's a grading well, which I was at the time. I was still grading well, but I'd have my play here or there, uh, which would happen, and I would stay in. Uh, there's reasons why coaches stick with the guy, even if it seems like to the average eye, oh, he's messing up, he's messing up. He may be doing things on the field uh, that his coaches are fine with, and he makes the occasional mistake where a coach is like, you know what, he's our best guy, we're going to stick with him. Um, and that, that just may be the case. There may not be anybody else, uh, or he may be doing something coaches like, and maybe we're criticizing him too much. Uh, but from my experience, coaches stuck with me, uh, because in that instance, I was A, their best guy, and B, they thought it was something that was fixable, and 
in my own head, I never found a way to take care of it until I went to the NFL. So in that case, um, I think for Foster, he just has to find a way uh, to kind of, and I mean, it's only three games left, but it seems like coaches have been like, this is our best guy. We're going to stick with him uh, rather than he's making a whole bunch of mistakes and we got to get him out of here. To the average guy, things are much different than internally when you're grading someone. Yeah, that, that was well said. I didn't mean to tee you up too bad. I, I saw a defensive question and felt bad that I'd taken the last couple. It has been it has been a long day at this point for me. I'm kind of running on fumes. Um, but, that, but that was well said. And Evan Foster has been here before. He probably does grade out well. There's a reason he's a three-year starter. Um, and, and he was a real impact player, you know, he he still is, but you know his his hitting ability changed games at times last year. So there's there's certainly credit due there. Um, just a couple more. Whoever we sacrificed to the football gods a couple weeks ago wasn't good enough. Who should we sacrifice now? It sounds like between Julian and Evan Foster, it's probably going to be me. So hey, it was nice knowing you guys. Um, can we at least wait until after December? Like I'm finally going to get December off again. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, we, we need to figure it out. We can sacrifice, how, how about this? We can sacrifice Nate and then we can bring Julian on full time here. That would be, that would yeah. be great. <laughs> I was going to say, take me next, man. Take me next. Yeah. yeah. It, takes, it's only a matter of time if we keep having to watch football games like this, honestly. Um, <laughs> all right. Last one. I'm sending it out on a, on a fittingly depressing note. Wink Radio is this year's edition the worst orange football team you've seen in the last 20 years because it's mine. I've probably only been really watching Syracuse football since 2009. 2000, mm-hmm. Yeah, 2009, which I believe was the Greg Paulus year because that was when I was accepted into Syracuse as a student. Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe. It's hard <laughs> because, well, one – it's like, is it objectively worse because the expectations are so much higher? And I think you're going to get more lopsided results when things go wrong with this scheme because you're running tempo. And if you can't move the ball when you run tempo, you're giving opposing teams more possessions, and that's just going to spread your margins. So I went back and looked at the 2014 season, which is kind of what initially came to my mind, and like. 27-26 double overtime win over Villanova in which Villanova's kicker misses a chip shot field goal in a dome to win. Very good Villanova team that year. John Robertson, the quarterback, really, really good. Central Michigan, 43 win. That's probably Syracuse's maybe their second best win of the year. Also beat Wake Forest. believe that was the game Terrell Hunt pointed to the scoreboard in the middle of the game when a Central Michigan <laughs> defensive lineman was getting on him. And, uh, and then after that game, so start 2-0, and then one in nine the rest of the way with, like, I don't know. I, I think Syracuse scored, didn't score more than two touchdowns in each of the last five games. I mean, the writing was on the wall. Uh, Scott Schaefer's last year. Obviously, you were there. So, um, yeah. the, the Notre Dame game was close, 31-15. Which, which team is worse, Julian, <laughs> that, that one or this one? Oh, <laughs> Oh man, that's that's really hard to claim that. Um, <laughs> you know what? Um, I I, actually, I I think that the team uh, the team I was I think that was actually worse only because we had I think that team was pretty experienced uh, across the board and we were still bad. 
Um, you know, we had guys across the front. Uh, defensively, I think we still had guys. And I can remember internally, I, I really hope Coach Blow doesn't listen to these things. He's going to give me a phone call. But uh, internally, um, uh, here's a funny story. Uh, beginning of the season, we were so poor up front, like the guys that we had. Coach Bullock came in one day and was like, yo, if you guys are going to play like this, we're just going to run a 3-4 and get some of you out of here. This is going to work. <laughs> like, you guys can't play like this. And then um, on the back end, our year, I think we still had Darrell and everything, too. Uh, so we had our issues on the back end. And I remember one year we, when we were playing Clemson. Yeah, same thing we were playing Clemson. And we were just messing up coverages. I'm yelling at people. Rel's yelling at people. And finally, he goes to the sideline to the coach, like, just play four, which was our base coverage. And I was sitting there like, yo, we're so bad. We just got to <laughs> play a base because we can't think of, like, we can't actually, you know, go through our own coverages. And I think there's actually a picture of me sitting there thinking about it. <laughs> there was a picture. And I got mad because, uh, one of my jerk uh, assistant coaches posted it inside the um, inside our building. Like, Wiggum, look at yourself. Like, is that how you feel after like something wrong goes? And I'm like, I mean, in reality, I'm thinking about why we're so bad. But um, you know, I, I, I'll take our twenty. What was that? Twenty. 2015 team, I think it was. 2015 is um, the last one. 2014-1 has a good case, though. And let me add this in. Yeah. I forgot about this. Talking with Terrell Hunt at 2015 Media Day, the offense used one cadence the whole year. That's fantastic. I didn't even know that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we, we certainly had our problems. Uh, so I would say this team was – the teams – the last – the back end, those 2014-2015 teams, man, we um, – I think we we didn't have the highest expectations either, but across the board, there were some things that um, that I would see and that coaches would say that it, it kind of suggests, you know, we're a pretty bad football team. <laughs> Whew. All right. And with that, we're wrapping up the edition of the show. Uh, we should be back during the bye week to chat with you guys. Uh, if you're all still listening, this is kind of the time of the year where you might not watch the games, but you should still listen to the podcast. So remember, go subscribe. <laughs> Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher. If you want to purchase advertising, you can contact Dylan Carpenter at 315-470-6069, and we will talk to you next time.